We do thank God for his persistent goodness to us and continuing to let us get together as we have gathered like this this morning. If you haven't already, please join me in turning in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Last week we got as far as chapter 3 and verse 13. We'll pick up in verse 14 this morning. We were able to watch last week as we began our time in this uh, chapter and with the author's help we were sort of able to experience right along with the characters in the story the, the very intense and risky efforts that Naomi and Ruth had gone through and that then Ruth and Boaz had walked through that night on the threshing floor. And we pick up the story at verse 14. There are two situations in particular that we're going to encounter this morning. The first will be, as we finish out chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, uh, to hear the aftermath of last week's events on that threshing floor as morning dawns now and Ruth returns home to Naomi. That'll be the first situation that we will encounter. Uh, the second will involve events that may have been happening simultaneously with the conversation between Ruth and Naomi. Uh, as we come into chapter 4, we will be moved out to the city gate of Bethlehem. And this morning we'll proceed as far as verse 10 of the fourth chapter. And we're going to consider three things in particular in these verses. Uh, the first is going to be, uh, just by way of preview for you, uh, we're going to think about the significance of uh, Boaz's grain gift. He's going to send Ruth home with yet another gift of grain. Uh, second, in the first five verses of chapter 4, we're going to think carefully about the plan that Boaz now executes. So there was a plan last week that Ruth executed. Uh, this week we're going to hear a plan executed by Boaz at the city gate, verses 1 to 5. And thirdly, then, we will consider in verses 6 to 10 uh, the differences that are put on display for us between the two redeemers that are now going to be in this account. So to begin, let me read for us Ruth 3, 14 to chapter 4, verse 10. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We begin by wrapping up the chapter that we spent all weekend last week. We begin uh, with verses 14 to 18 of chapter 3. Uh, one thing is very clear, as soon as morning begins to dawn and they awaken, and that is that both of these individuals know the importance of finishing this scene up without being noticed, without being witnessed. Now, we talked at length last week about the potentially scandalous appearance that this whole scenario presented and the dangers that could come with that. Uh, without a doubt, it would at least have complicated the plans that Boaz was making for later that day. If they were witnessed and there were rumors, and then he comes and uh, seeks her redemption, things would have been greatly complicated. So Boaz says, probably to himself in verse 14, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now, we should notice something. Notice that in, in verses 14 to 18, there are really only two things that actually happen here. One is that Ruth leaves unspotted and reports back to Naomi. The second is really the significance in these verses, and that is that Boaz sends along this gift with her of what is called six measures of barley. There's just some speculation about what those measures are. We know it's not, for example, an ephah, not six of those because that would be far too much to carry, uh, but this was probably something around 80 to 90 pounds of grain that he pours into her very thick shawl and helps her to load up to take home. It's, a, it's most likely still a substantial uh, amount of grain that's being sent back. Uh, there's something else that he sends along with the grain, though, that we don't find out about until verse 17. He sends along a message with Ruth to go back to Naomi, uh, a message that is to interpret and explain this gift that he is sending back. The message we read in verse 17 is, 
you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Many people see in this an implicit effort on Boaz's part to assure Naomi of exactly what he is going to do. Uh, you may remember back in chapter 1, Naomi had very publicly declared herself to be empty, to have come back empty. I left here full, and the Lord has brought me back empty, and empty in the most significant way for them, empty of children. And here Boaz, it seems, intentionally demonstrates that as much as he is able to help it, they are not going to leave their interaction with him empty. And he uses the same word. The ESV says, uh, you must not go back empty-handed, uh, but it's, the, it's just the word for empty. It's the exact word that Naomi used in reference to herself in chapter 1, that she had come back empty. Uh, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty when you have been with me. And so there's a suggestion here. Is he talking about more than just grain? Is he using the grain as a picture to tell and reassure Naomi, not only will you be full in terms of this food I'm bringing back, but I will not let you go away empty in terms of this much greater need that you have that has uh, led to all of the events of the night before. And we can hear in verse 18 Naomi's confidence that Boaz will in fact accomplish what he has promised. And not just what he's promised. Did you notice there that he had sworn this? Uh, he, he took an oath with the name of Yahweh in verse 13. As the Lord lives, he said, I will do this thing. And so Naomi says of him in verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Other translations say, the man will not rest until he has settled the matter. She's speaking from great confidence. You may remember that she has known Boaz in the past. She's had a relationship with him because of her, her husband, Elimelech. This is a man who was close to Elimelech. That's why she was so excited upon learning his name earlier in this book. This is someone who instills in her a great amount of confidence. And then we move immediately to chapter 4, verse 1, and we are drawn out to the city gate. It's interesting, the wording in verse 1 actually phrases this so that very possibly, even as these two women are having this conversation, even as they are talking, Boaz has already made his way out to the gate, which is why it's rendered in the ESV. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat there. That seems to be the right way to read that that as soon as he loads her up to go back to uh, Naomi, he is preparing himself and making his way out to the gate to take care of this business. Naomi knows this man, doesn't she? He is proving himself to be one who will act decisively here once he has decided to do a thing. He's gone to the gate to take care of these matters, to sit down and watch for this nearer redeemer that he needs to speak with. He's gone to the gate for this for two reasons. One is that this is simply the easiest place to find him because it's the only way to get out of the city of Bethlehem. Everybody, if they're going to go anywhere, whether it be the field or another town, everyone has to pass through this gate. So if you don't want to waste time looking for someone in the pretty complicated arrangement of the city, just go to the city gate and wait for a little bit, and you will find this person if he's doing anything today. Um, so that's why he goes to the gate. 
The second reason he goes to the gate, though, isn't just to find the man. It's because that's the location he's going to need to meet with this man. The city gate is where legal transactions took place in these times. And so for these reasons, he quickly gets there and sits down in order that he might not miss him as he goes out. Uh, he sits and waits for the man, and now we have, for the third time in the book, we have this, uh, this uh, expression of behold on the part of the author, directing our attention to something. You use the word behold like this when something unexpected or surprising is coming next, as we have seen already. This is the third of three times that it will be used. Boaz had the shock of his life in the last chapter when the word came up. In chapter 3, verse 8, he turned over in the night and behold a woman at his feet. And he was shocked by this. The other two uses of behold in this book are, are preceding something that falls into the realm of the unexpected or the unlikely on our part as the readers. In chapter 2, verse 4 was the other place we had it. It was Behold, just as Ruth happened to be in that field, Boaz happened to be showing up in time to see her. This was a surprising coincidence. Behold. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, it's, Behold, just as Boaz sits down to look for this man, here he comes, walking out of the gate. It's just over and over again we have seen in our study of this book the providential timing and hand of the Lord in moving these events along. It really makes remarkable some of the criticisms that the book of Ruth has received by people at points in the past. It has been said on more than one occasion uh, that the book of Ruth, there's a problem with the book of Ruth. The, the problem is that God is hardly present in the book. The problem is that this is really a book of human ingenuity, human uh, 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 crafty planning, and God is hardly here. It's said that he shows up only two times in the book. In chapter 1, verse 6, God visited his people with food. And later in this chapter, in verse 13, God will open the womb of Ruth so that she conceives. This is the criticism that's given. I hope that we have been able to see this book much more clearly than that. Because the author has not um, been shy about the involvement, the deep level of involvement uh, of our Lord in, this, in these events. He has clearly presented to us example after example of God's providence put on display throughout this story. Every second of the action, every second of the lives of these people that are represented in the story, Every second of it, isn't it, is being guided by the hand of the Almighty. This is something that God's people throughout Scripture have understood and, um, in particular, have recognized not just when things are going well. They've expressed a confidence and a knowledge of God's providential hand and His direction and His sovereignty when things are going good and when things are not going good. There are times in Scripture where God's people recognize His hand and His direction as they try to do something good and aren't able to do it. You think of Paul in Acts chapter 16 when he desired to go and preach the gospel in places. And it says that he was prevented from doing so by the Spirit. 
Here's a man who wants to bring the gospel to a place that doesn't have it. He's not able to do so, but he's able to even understand in that moment. It's God that is preventing that path because he has another path in store. The high priest Eli can be told in the Old Testament of his own coming judgment, coming upon himself and upon his sons. And he can say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I mean, it's these places where we see statements that can sort of surprise us um, if we're not thinking carefully about the blessed example that it is for us. You think of Job. The tragedies he can endure and then say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, here again we are struck by the deep detail level guidance of these events by God. Boaz sees the man coming through the gate. He calls to him to sit down. And he also gathers ten of the city's elders to join them. And there's no mention on the part of any of these individuals of confusion. They, they know what's going on. This is standard practice for the city gate. They know that there's some business that needs to be taken care of. And so they step aside and sit. And there is now a legal convening that is happening here. It's a common, well-understood event that Boaz is setting up here to take care of a piece of business. Then we hear him speak. Let me reread for us verses 1 to 5. Now we're going to see Boaz's plan unfolding. Beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, <coughs> Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And we'll stop there. You can already detect, if you were with us last week, that Boaz has been thinking through how he was going to conduct this piece of business. There was no concern in the last chapter about the land of Elimelech. The concern was the safety and provision for Ruth and for Naomi. But it's not what he leads with here. What, what, is, what is he doing? Well, we need to understand a few things here. First, let's look for a moment at this other redeemer in, uh, and how he is portrayed in the uh, unfolding of Boaz's plan. Can you tell? So this, this redeemer is nearer in blood relation to Naomi. We don't know what the relationship is other than this is not Elimelech's literal brother. We do know that. Uh, but he is some level of uh, nearness to her, probably not too near, but near enough to count as a kinsman redeemer. And the wording of uh, when Boaz is finished talking with him, he makes clear there are only two men that fit in this 
uh, nearness legal realm that would qualify them. There's this man and there is Boaz. So he's somewhat close in relationship to Naomi as far as his blood goes. How close is he as far as an actual relationship with her? Can you tell that this man is quite distant from Naomi in terms of any actual relationship? It seems to me there's a number of indications that this man, uh, certainly he feels no relationship to her, no sense of obligation to her. Uh, but even in the way of his knowledge of her situation, he seems to be very limited. He has, it's been three plus months now, he has done nothing with the Naomi matter thus far. He's not accepted the right of redemption. He's not denied it. It seems to be something he really hasn't thought anything about. And we get the clear sense that Boaz is actually informing him of some things that he does not know about this morning as he comes out of the city gate. He brings up the need for Naomi, uh, for her land to be redeemed. And he says in verse 4, So I thought I would tell you of it. And you get the sense of a man who's sitting here nodding, being led along in a story that is news to him. With every piece of information that Boaz gives, the man changes his mind about what he ought to do. You do that when you hadn't thought this through before, and when these are new details to you. He had no plans to redeem Naomi. And then he hears of the land in verses 3 and 4, and he takes the offer. Then he hears about Ruth, and he changes his mind. There's clearly no concern for Naomi in his thinking. He has no problem with Naomi. He's not been thinking about her at all. This is a financial question for him. Is this a wise investment or not? That's how he's making this decision. Let's look at how he's going to process this. He gets Boaz's uh, short summary of the situation in verse 3. And if verse 3 is the entire deal, then this is clearly going to be a profitable um, transaction for the man. Here's what he learned in verse 3. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, there are some things that we know about how they handle inheritances, how they handle land, how they think of it in terms of family possession. We've seen that that was really at the crux of, the, of much of the kinsman redeemer laws was their passion to protect family lines by preserving the name and by preserving the land that goes with the name. These two things went together in their mind. The family goes with the land. So if there's anyone left of the deceased, like in this case a widow, this man already knows he's not just going to be acquiring the property He's also taking on the obligation to care for the family that depends on that land. But see, this is what's so great about this offer in the eyes of this individual. Uh, the widow in question is Naomi. This is an old widow, well beyond childbearing years. So what this represents for him is a short-term obligation with great potential long-term benefits and no long-term risk. What's going to happen in this situation with just verse 3 is that the man will take over care of the land. He will use its proceeds to provide for the widow of the land, for Naomi, and any uh, with her until she dies. And after that, the land is his. She has no 
one to inherit it. And so it will go to him. It will become a part of his possessions that he can pass on to his children. This is a great deal. But it's in verse 5 that Boaz slips in the additional information. It's as if he says, by the way, in redeeming Naomi's family land, you also obtain Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now we'll come back a little later to understand this naming of Ruth as the widow of the dead. That is terribly important in what's going on here. It's a little bit hard to understand, so we'll come back and look at that. But even without an explanation at the moment, we can have a clear sense from his response as to how this changes things for him. The whole situation is different now if Ruth is the one who is going to be redeemed as the widow of the dead. Here's how this looks for his finances now. He will pay for the land. He will pay to work the land. The proceeds he gets from working the land will go to providing for Naomi. And in providing an heir through Ruth, that child, when he grows up, will take ownership of the land when he comes of age. So now you still have the short-term uh, obligation, but the long-term gain is now gone in the situation. He will not get to cash in at the end. The land will never go to him. And so now this is a financially damaging prospect, which is disappointing to him. But if, if you remember what we've seen in the Redeemer laws, this was supposed to be the point of what God did for his people in providing kinsmen redeemers. The point was, these Redeemer laws were always searching for someone who was willing to take a personal loss in order to preserve uh, a particular family. To preserve their land and to preserve their name. This chapter is all about preserving names. The idea of a family's name shows up six times in this chapter all by itself. Boaz speaks of it often, verse 5, to perpetuate the name of the dead. Verse 10, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Verse 10 again, so that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. This is the, this is the issue. But this particular man, this nearer redeemer, cannot be bothered by that. And the reason is, he has his own name to consider. It's the deciding factor for him, which is a little bit ironic in the story. Have you noticed that it's, sort, it's been sort of difficult to talk about his place in the story because we can't actually refer to him by name, can we? It's because we have no idea what his name actually is. <clears throat> his name has been lost to history. And here's what's fascinating. It, that happened as an intentional move on the part of the author of this book. Do you think Boaz knew this man's name? <clears throat> this is a relative of Boaz. Of course he knew the man's name. He would have had to speak the man's name in this legal proceeding where rights are being transferred from one person to another. He would have had to have said his name. And yet, when he's quoted here in this account, in verse 1, calling out to the man, it's as if his name has been redacted from the account. His name has been bleeped out. The ESV says, 
as a placeholder, friend. Turn aside, friend. Uh, there's no word for friend in here. Uh, we have to decide what to say uh, because this is sort of difficult what he did. He, he used a, um, a literary device here. He says, turn aside, and he addresses him with a rhyming combination of two words that really don't even make sense except that we can assume that it did hold a place in the Hebrew mind. They understood what he was doing with it. Here's what one, uh, one writer, how he describes this, uh, this literary function. He says, this is a kind of wordplay involving words strung together ungrammatically, but whose meaning is clear in context. Here's some examples. Hodgepodge. 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 You can use the word hodgepodge and someone knows what you mean, but it's sort of a nebulous idea. Uh, another example may be, and more to the point here, so-and-so. So-and-so. In fact, in, in, in large part, as commentators and writers write about this event and look back on this man, that's actually what they call him. I, I saw it from four different commentators. They're, his name is Mr. So-and-so. That's how they refer to him in this, because that's almost literally what, he, what the writer says here comes out of Boaz's mouth. Now, we're smart people. We know that Boaz didn't literally say, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. We know that's not what he did. This is a way of removing this man's name from the account. Now, why would the writer do that? What purpose does that serve? to take his name out of this. Well, it's actually a very powerful thing, isn't it? This is the man who could not be bothered with preserving or redeeming Naomi out of a desire to protect his own name. And as a result, his name is lost forever. I mean, he will finish up this transaction, go out into the field, never to be heard from again as far as history is concerned. No one remembers his name. The kinsman redeemer laws were inherently self-sacrificing. You had to suffer personal loss for the well-being of your family member if you were going to do this. And by writing those things into the law in the way that he did, God was portraying a principle that will be highlighted even more clearly in the new covenant. Just consider some things that Paul wrote to the church. You know these. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just think of all of the one another's of Scripture which I believe one of our care groups is literally walking through and studying right now, week by week. It's timely. These commands are a reflection of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're a reflection of Him in terms of both His words to us and His own example to us. Isn't that right? Does that fit the example that Christ gave to us? We hear His word on this in places like Matthew 23, 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, listen to that, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Boy, suddenly Boaz seems like a case study in the truth of that principle. 
We heard the example of this in Philippians 2, 9 that I just read. Uh, notice what it says about the effect that this has on Jesus' name. Let me read this and, and go on. Uh, notice what it says Jesus was willing to do, and then notice what it says about his name. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, willing to empty himself by taking the form of servant, was then given the name that is above every name. And this Mr. So-and-so of our account, unwilling to voluntarily lift the needs of Naomi's family out of an effort to grab onto what he has, winds up losing what he has. The best way to lose what I have is to love what I have idolatrously. Surely this is behind the seemingly on its face strange statements of Jesus in Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't this the kingdom of God principle that we are given over and over again in Scripture? And I think this is a good place for us to insert something. We've been noticing over the last couple of weeks in our text as well. This is why it is so significant that the law, the Old Testament law, while it made provision for kinsmen redeemers like this, didn't require it of these men. They are being asked to sacrifice in this way willingly and not under compulsion. They have the freedom to turn it down so that it passes to the next nearest. This gets at the heart that God is seeking in his people, doesn't it? He is seeking a cheerfully giving, willing heart from his people. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's that willingness-driven giving, that, that self-sacrifice that is not compulsory, that is such a blessing. It's a blessing both to the giver and a blessing to the recipient. This Mr. So-and-so is not willing. Verse 6, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now let's shift focus at this point. We've looked first at this Mr. So-and-so, the unnamed potential Redeemer. Let's look now at Boaz and the way he presents this offer to Mr. So-and-so. I mentioned uh, before just how important verse 5 is in changing this man's mind uh, when he learns of Ruth and the place she's going to occupy in this deal. There's a real difficulty that we have here. 
And the difficulty, I mean, it's, it's sort of a difficulty with the law in general, with, with law, with law codes in general. Written law codes never explain the procedures in every conceivable situation, do they? They can't. That's why there have to be law courts to see how things actually play out. There has to be case law that we go through to. It's difficult because the law is not explicit on every single situation. All that we know at this point in 2020 of their procedures uh, is what we know from the law. And that is the case of a childless widow. Uh, the brother of, that hus- of the first husband could provide an offspring. We know those things because they're stated for us in the law. The law does not tell us explicitly what to do if there is no brother. They had to develop a practice of how they would um, apply these laws. The law also does not tell us what to do if the woman happens to be barren or beyond childbearing age. Well, what, is she just out of luck? Are there some ways that they can uh, apply these laws that would still achieve the same end? The law doesn't explicitly state that. And it doesn't tell us what to do if, although she's childless, she actually has a daughter-in-law that's still alive, as in this very unusual case. Well, what, uh, does that change the situation? See, there's all sorts of things that we don't know that the original audience did know. They knew how these things were uh, were laid out in, in their legal practice. And uh, this is the only place in the Old Testament where a living, breathing kinsman redeemer is actually present in the story for us to watch and to learn from. So it puts us in an interesting place as a church studying through the book of Ruth, trying to understand these things, or even the church in the 21st century. Here's what's happening. We are actually learning what they were allowed to do in real time as we read the book of Ruth. You'll see places, uh, if you go to a biblical encyclopedia and look up a kinsman redeemer, they will speak in confident terms about what that entailed. As if, but you know where they refer? They refer here. We only know those things because we're watching them happen and saying to ourselves, well, I guess, that's, I guess that was allowed. I guess that's how they did that. So here's what we're seeing in chapter 4 here. Apparently, according to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth was allowed to stand in the eyes of the law. She was allowed to stand in Naomi's place in this interaction so that she is viewed as, quote, verse 5 says, the widow of the dead. We think that's probably actually a legal term. Ruth is allowed to serve as her daughter-in-law being that she is bare, uh, unable to have children of her own, Ruth is allowed to serve as the widow of the dead. And to me, this is just so helpful in understanding. I've always sort of been puzzled uh, a little bit about Mr. So-and-so's surprise and his change of mind after verse 5. But this really explains why he might not have been expecting this. He was envisioning the redemption of a widow beyond childbearing age. Now he realizes that they have chosen, Naomi has chosen to have Ruth stand in her place, which makes the widow he's redeeming not an older woman who can't have children, but a young woman very much of childbearing age. It's not the deal he thought he was about to get. By the time of verses 7 and 8, the decision has been made. The author pauses to give us a quick note of explanation there in verse 7. 
about the removing of a sandal and what that signified. We don't know what that means. The fact that he puts it in here means that evidently at the time he's writing this, that custom had already passed out of practice so that his original hearers need to be explained about this handing off of a sandal. So he explains the sign that Mr. So-and-so is indicating by removing his sandal and giving it to Boaz. And then we have the legal declaration in verses 9 and 10. This is where at last all of the uncertainty and the tension that has been building in this story at last comes to resolution right here. Verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 10, we hear Boaz formally declare that not only, notice he's not just announcing an engagement to Ruth. He is declaring that he is about to take these actions as the kinsman redeemer. And he's therefore making it formal. What the law stipulates, which is that the first male offspring of this interaction, of this marriage, will belong to Naomi. He is going to bear a child for Naomi, for Naomi's line. And on the part of the original here is a great collective sigh of relief. Now comes, she has been redeemed, but even the problem of last week now has been resolved. Which redeemer will she have? We so want her to be blessed by the redemption of Boaz. Which one's she going to have? Now even that has been resolved. As our time this morning draws to a close, I want to remind us of some things. I want to remind us of how uh, what we have seen in our passage this morning speaks to us and even helps guide our conduct even this week in our own lives. We've seen a number of biblical principles put on display for us here, haven't we, in this passage. We have seen Boaz personify a biblical principle. And here it is. God is pleased with generosity and selflessness. And He blesses it. Remember Matthew 23, 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There is something attractive in the kingdom of God about this sort of willingness. As we live that out in our lives this week, we are being what God's word says that we are. I mean, you know what that makes us. If this is the example that Christ has given us, these are the words he has commanded of us, and this is then how we live in the face of this world what that makes us is ambassadors of Christ. We represent Him when we are increasingly willing to put others above ourselves. And thus, when we plead with others to be reconciled to God through Christ, when we share the gospel explicitly, pleading with sinners to come to Christ and be saved, when they hear those things from us, as a result of all of this, they are not just met with the words of Christ, they're met with the heart of Christ at the same time as they hear those words from someone that cares about them. And of course, being his ambassadors assumes the obvious truth 
that as we do these things, we're simply mirroring what Christ himself put on display for us, that God, in the person of his Son, would love and rescue his people by willingly taking their sins upon himself. This is the news that we receive in the gospel. And because that's true of us as God's children, I mean, just think about how this allows us to relate ourselves to Naomi here. From this moment on, I mean, this man is now Naomi's redeemer. From this moment on, if someone has a financial bone to pick with Naomi, do they go to Naomi? They don't go to Naomi anymore. They have to go to Boaz now to resolve any conflict that they may have, any objection. She has been spared of those, uh, op- those situations. And such is the extent of our redemption that we have in Christ. When the accuser comes to you, child of God, this week with accusations, when you find yourself to be someone more and more as you go on living who is oppressed by the guilt of former sins so that we just can't quite seem to get out from underneath it, we can't seem to live in the joy that is supposed to be ours in Christ because of the freedom He's given to us. As we discover these things in ourselves, now we know what we are to do. Anyone coming to Naomi would be politely redirected to her Redeemer to settle these financial issues. When the accuser comes to us with accusations of former sins, we're to do the very same thing. We're to politely direct him to the owner of our soul. Let him see whether his accusations will stand at the foot of the blood-stained cross. And if our accuser thinks that they will, he hasn't been reading his Bible. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. This is exactly the point that Paul is trying to convey in order to comfort and encourage and assure his fellow believers. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how could he do that? Verse 14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Well, how on earth does he have the right to do that? Verse 14, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. He goes on to speak of this act of God in Christ as a great disarming of our enemy. Oh, may God allow this picture of redemption that we have faced this morning to strengthen the knees of any of our brothers and sisters among us this morning who need reminding that God's grace, as we sing, is greater than all my sins. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you in gratitude for that grace that is indeed greater than all our sins. We are grateful as your people for the, for the enlivened consciences that you have given us that allow us to hate our sin in ways that we never did before. 
that allow us to truly long for sanctification, for holiness. And we, we, we lament at the sight of ongoing, indwelling sin. But, oh, Lord, far be it from us to be a people who would ever leave our thoughts there because that is so dishonoring to the work of our Redeemer who has died so that we might not bear the guilt and bear the weight of that guilt. I pray, Lord, that even this morning we would be attentive to your word in such a way that we would be further comforted and strengthened and emboldened in the forgiveness that we have through Christ to renew our battle against sin. Father, for those of us here who have grown weary in that battle, I pray that you would use your word this morning in their life to greatly strengthen and encourage that fight. We thank you for the picture that you've given us in Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, a little dim picture of this unimaginable grace that you will give to us and that indeed you have given to us in your Son on the cross. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.